Uh, a lot of good stuff going on. If you have a Bible, you're here to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as today is Father's Day. I have a message I want to share that I believe is very timely in our culture, in our church, and just across the board on fatherhood and parenthood and, and manhood and all of the above. And so I don't know if you know this or not, but there is now ambiguity with what it means to be a man. If you were to Google what is a man, you would get a thousand different answers. And I'd probably encourage you not to do that because you may get stuff pop up on your Google search you don't need to have on your Google search. But when you ask people what is a man, like depending somewhat on the region of the country you were to ask that, you may be getting a different answer. Asking different people, different backgrounds, you may get different answers to a simple question of what is a Man, in cultural Christianity or cultural context, it may be something like, well, a man is the, the cause and root of all the problems going on in our world. The, the whole deconstruction movement of, of femininity and feminism and, and, and toxic masculinity, it's all about how man is the problem. If we can change the man, we can solve all the world's problems. And you look at that through movies and TV, how the father or their dad is always the butt of every joke. He's always the cause of every problem and every failure. And, and it's an attempt to deconstruct manhood in order to make everybody on the same page. Then you look at toxic masculinity, which I believe is actually a real thing, is when you believe that having a lot of testosterone makes you a man. And a lot of testosterone does not make you a man. It just makes you have a lot of acne and steroid and go bald and get fatter quicker. And it means you have things like this. You, you don't think men are supposed to cry. You think women are an object or an adornment rather than a co-equal. You think of things like emotions should be suppressed. You shouldn't uh, be compassionate. That shows weakness. And, and all these types of things, we suppress these things because you're trying to achieve some status of machoism. In order to get there, you have to push everybody down to make yourself feel more like a man. And in turn, you become this testosterone-fueled, emotionless robot that's a sit-down in a lazy boy recliner to recharge as you complain about all the things in the world and shout out uh, commands from your throne of your little bitty kingdom. That's toxic masculinity. No one wants that. No one wants somebody who thinks they're better than you because they have testosterone. No one wants to see somebody who elevates themselves and push everybody else down because of a, a, a chromosome difference. No one wants to see somebody try to be Rambo. No one wants to see anybody be Hulk Hogan. We want to see men be men the way God designed them to be. And so biblical manhood is a lot more complex than we actually give it credit for. It's not built on a chromosome necessarily. It's not built on a stereotype. It's not built on habits or interests. doesn't matter how much you hunt or how little you hunt. Biblical manhood is complex. It has to do with virtues, values, and character. You see this in the Bible in, J in Jacob and Esau. Two drastically different men. Esau is this burly, hairy little joker. Hairy, outdoorsman, hunter, fisherman, probably graduated from Wilson High School, drives a jacked up truck, four wheel drive with a MAGA flag hanging off the back. He skips work to go fishing. He don't see him through deer season. Like he's, he's a manly man in our terminology. But, but Jacob is the opposite. Jacob don't like to go outside. Jacob likes the air conditioning. 
He's a mama's boy. He stays on the inside of the house. He cooks. He probably likes fashion. He probably gets really nice shoes, wears skinny jeans, has a good fashion taste, probably has good taste in music, probably a little creative. Yet the Bible exalts both of them as godly men. The Bible exalts both, but God actually uses both of them in different ways to accomplish his mission and advance his kingdom here on earth. And so the Bible doesn't describe manhood as interest in outdoorsy and all these things. It describes it as someone that's willing to let God use them to advance his kingdom through their life. That is biblical manhood. And there's a problem in culture today where we will affirm everything and everybody. We will affirm homosexuality, we'll affirm racism, we'll affirm liberality, we'll affirm all this junk in culture. But we won't affirm men. It, that shocks me that on Father's Day, most people in America will be a celebrating fathers, celebrating their role, celebrating their sacrifice, celebrating their love, celebrating their hard work, celebrating fathers, but then tomorrow we'll go back to saying anything that has to do with men is bad and we'll affirm everything else but men. And my whole perspective and goal today is to affirm godly men. There are men in this room that you're allowing God, you're yielding to his leadership, you sacrifice, you try to grow, you try to have better character, you love your wife, you love your kids, you work hard, you try to follow Jesus, like you are a godly man. And I know if no one else is gonna say it, if no one else is going to affirm you, if culture's not gonna affirm you, if social media's not gonna affirm you, maybe even your spouse may not affirm you, I'm gonna affirm you today and say, it is okay to be a man. And Paul, in the scripture that's his only job. He, that's all he's trying to do. After this whole letter of correction to the church, here's how he lays it out in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 through 14. It says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, and what? Act like men. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. Paul is leaving this letter. He's finishing this letter up with these military commands that are like in rapid fire. Be watchful, stand firm, be strong, act like a man, and do everything in love. It's like a rally cry. Like if you played sports before you go out on the field, you know, one, two, three, team, one, two, three, hustle, whatever it was. This was one, two, three, be watchful, one, two, three, be strong, one, two, three, stand firm, one, two, three, act like. This was a rallying cry for the men at the church of Corinth to lead and be men. If Paul had to affirm the church and had to affirm the men 2,000 years ago, I think it's much more needed today more than ever. I think men need to know it is okay to be different than women. One of the jokes is, you know, women don't really want to hear a, a man talk. They just want to hear a woman talk in a deeper voice. They just want to hear an echo of what they're saying, but through a baritone. And you need to know that it's okay to be different than women. It's okay to be different than culture. It's okay to be a man. And if you're under the age of 30, you need this more than anybody else. It is okay for you to be a man. 
It is okay for you to have masculinity. It is okay for you to be a man. In a culture that tells you everything needs to be ambiguous, that is a lie. God in the scripture says, act like a man. Be a man. Act like a man. And that is not a byproduct. You are male biologically by birth. But you, come a, you become a man through maturity. So there's a whole lot of people that are male, but they ain't men. And what we need to see in culture is people that aren't just biologically male, they become spiritually men. Because culture is crying out. The tears of the land are crying out for men and for fathers to take their place and provide godly love fatherly love and manhood that protects and provides and takes care of what God has given them. It's crying out. But if we never step into our role as men, if we never step into it, then the culture loses. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, the most critical need of the church at this moment is bold men, free men. The church must seek in prayer and in much humility the coming again of men made of the stuff of which prophets and martyrs are made. He said that in the 1940s. Like the, my pastor told me this years ago before I moved to Florence, Alabama, he said the best gift you can give the church, the best gift, is not a preaching gift, it's not a financial gift, it's not a spiritual gift. The best gift you can give the church is godly men. He said, if you can give wives a godly husband, it will change the house. If you can give sons and daughters a godly father, it will change the generation. He said, if you can give them godly men, and I've used that sense of, that my job is to equip and empower men to be godly men, to walk out their purpose as men of God in a culture that says you shouldn't. And this is getting harder and harder and harder. And so Paul says here, act like men. What does that mean? For me, that means be like Jesus. To act like men means you. Jesus is your role model, not the Incredible Hulk, not Spider-Man, not Superman, not President Trump, not President Biden, not uh, you know, whatever the baseball stories, not LeBron James. Like, he should be your role model. Jesus should be the model man. Acting like men also means this, and I heard some of this from, from Jensen Franklin and his message on the same scripture, some of it is to act like men means don't act like a woman. Like to be like a man, just don't act like a woman. You say, well, what does that even mean? It means don't be a drama queen. It means don't get caught up in the things that separate women. Do you realize men and women are biologically different, but they're also spiritually different? There's different anointings, even though they're equals, there's differences in the spiritual DNA of men and women. Men are innately designed to lead with responsibility and sacrifice. And so to act like a woman means you reject your need to lead to be a follower of everybody else instead of a leader. To act like a, a woman means you submit or you conform your manhood to the culture to feminize yourself so you're not rejected by people. It says this in, in the book of Romans. This is Paul speaking. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24. He says, therefore, God gave them over in, sin, in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for natural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural desires with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so they do, not, so they do what ought not be done on their own. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Amen. They have no understanding of fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. He wrote that 2,000 years ago, and it is more true today than ever before. And I have all the compassion, all the love, all the respect for anybody who is in the homosexual lifestyle, LGBTQT, all that stuff. I have all the love and respect. But the scripture is literally saying that the only way you can get to this place is that God turns you over to your sinful lust. You become depraved in your mind where you start thinking what is wrong is right, what is evil is good. And you begin to live that out and you exchange the spiritual DNA God gave you as a man and you trade that in for the DNA of a woman. Now, as politically incorrect as this is, it's still true. And the fact that it's happening more than ever, no one ever equates the fact that since there's been an attack on men in culture and since the homosexual agenda has taken the forefront in culture, since then, the family unit has decreased in every measurable metric we could ever think of. Anxiety in kids, suicide in kids, drug abuse in kids, everything, sexual abuse in kids, everything. And one of the reasons why is men stop being men and exchange the leadership to whoever else because we got so lazy we didn't want to follow anymore. But the other thing is that to act like a man is to not act like a boy. Meaning, there's a difference between a man and a boy. There are a lot of 47-year-old boys and some good 22-year-old men. Because being a man doesn't mean you have a job and you can yell and you have a beard. Being a man means you have spiritual maturity. Paul said it this way. He said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways which means there's some things that shouldn't pass over from boyhood into manhood. And one of them is boys are self-centered by nature. It's about them, their desires, what they want. They're emotional. They're irresponsible. They're lazy. They do this. But men realize it's not about their desires. It's about those, their leading's desires. They realize about sacrificing what I want for what they want. One of the, the greatest things I tell young dads, like what is, what is being a dad? I said, being a dad is somebody who sacrifices what they want to take care and provide 
for those they love. That's a father. But we have a whole lot of people, a whole lot of guys that they don't sacrifice anything. Life revolves around them. Everything's about what they want, what they need. There's no sacrifice. That is boyhood. We have enough boys. We need some men to rise up. But number two, he says, be watchful. And so for me, that is to be responsible. Being watchful means you're responsible for what God has given. You're responsible for your walk, your wife's walk, your kid's walk. You're responsible for this church. You're responsible for the community. He says, be watchful. And the language he's using is a watchtower on the outskirts of the city as the people who watched out for any enemy invaders. They would watch it so the city felt safe as long as there was men in the watchtowers watching over. They felt safe. They felt like they could live life. They felt comfortable as long as there was a man watching over them. And it's still true today that being a man is being watchful over your family. In Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord God took the man, talking about Adam, and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So one of the very first things God does, he gives the man a garden to work and a family to keep. Very first thing, he gave him some, some type of work and a family to watch over. It's still true. Every man will never find fulfillment until you're watching over your business, your job, your career, some way to provide, and the people you love. It's a biblical principle. What happens is whenever men neglect their garden, whenever they neglect their place to work at, no matter when they neglect those responsibilities, the enemy slides in. See this, Adam and Eve. God gives them this garden. He gives them the woman that he's supposed to watch over both of them, take care of them, be responsible for them. All of a sudden, Adam disappears for something. He must have been going to an Alabama football game, leaves Eve at home by herself. Eve gets manipulated and deceived by the serpent, takes a bite of the fruit, whatever the fruit may be, and what happens? God doesn't come down on Eve. God comes down on Adam. And what happens is when men are absent, the enemy fills the void in the household. And you need to get this more than anything else. When men are irresponsible, the enemy fills the gap where the man was supposed to be. And that's where half our problems in culture are coming from. When men are absent due to divorce, when men are absent due to laziness, when men are absent for whatever reason it may be, when they're absent, the enemy just slides in. He becomes a fake father trying to deceive people away from the spiritual father, the heavenly father. And what happens is they start following a father of lies. It's been going on since day one. That's why as men, we have to be watchful. Which to some of you, maybe your marriage is on the rocks. I would push through a little bit longer because you being in a household is extremely important. For some of you, maybe you're a blended family. You being in that household as a stepfather is extremely important. For some of you, maybe you only see your kids every other weekend. You better call them every single day or text them every single morning to remind them you're watching over them. See, the watching over is not controlling. It's I'm the protector. If the enemy is going to come to them, he's going to have to come through me first. That is being watchful. means being intentional. means being present. means being responsible. That as men, we're responsible. You, You realize we are responsible for this church. We are responsible for this community, the shoals. We're responsible for our households. We're responsible for this nation. Men are responsible. We have to be watchful. But he also said, stand firm. 
which means be principled. Stand firm in the faith is what he said, meaning don't be moved, don't be shaken. Stand firm where you're at in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians uh, earlier says this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, meaning don't let culture push you. Don't let your wife push you out of the faith. Don't let your kids manipulate you out of the faith. Stand firm, stand strong. If you don't stand for anything, you're going to fall for anything. And change the way I say it. If you don't stand for something, then your fame is going to fall into anything. And this is hard, guys. I'll tell you, of all the things, this is hard. As men, we have to be the pillars to stand firm that when emotions are rising in the house, you know, I have Toy and I have three daughters, the emotions in our house can go anywhere from heavenly to hellish in a matter of what we're eating for dinner. So as the husband, I have to be the one who, who brings stability to it. Jesus, when he's on the boat with the disciples and the waves are crashing in, he calmed the storm. As men, we're not called to rock the boat with our emotions. We're called to push through and steady the storms of life and steady our family and steady our kids and steady our wife so we can keep moving forward to where God has called us to be. And we live in a culture where it's trying to convince you not to stand firm, that standing firm is, is bigotry or hateful or anything else. No, standing firm just means I know what my values are, my principles are, and I'm not going to change them because culture changes. I'm not going to change my theology to support my behavior. I'm not going to change my theology to support my kids' behavior. I'm not going to change my theology to support culture's behavior. I am going to be strong and stand firm in the faith. The faith that's been around more than 2,000 years. You go back to Judaism, it's been around for 6,000 years. I don't get to change that because culture changed. And as men, you have to learn, you have to be firm and stand. There's nothing wrong with being firm. There's things my kids do I do not approve of. There's things my kids say I do not approve of. There's things Toya says I have to say no to. It is okay for men to stand firm. It's okay. I can love you and not approve of things you do. Like my kids, you know, do stuff I don't approve of. And I let them know I love you unconditionally. My love for you does not ever change. I love you now more than I loved you when you're born. I love you. It doesn't change. It does not, it's not change based on what you do or your behavior. Never. But my approval does. So when I approve of something, see, when you approve of something, you give permission for that to be repeated. When you disapprove something, you give permission for that to stop. And what happens is we confuse love with approval. So what happens is in the name of love, we actually give people permission to repeat behaviors that are actually destroying themselves. And see, for my kids, I tell them, my love is unconditional, but my blessings are conditional. See, I love you forever, but my blessings flow towards obedience. And so what happens in our culture, in this name of God is love, were, and I didn't even know they were doing this, the songs they're singing today about holiness, 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 that holiness is the only thing in the Bible that is described to God three times. He's holy, holy, holy. You never hear God is love, love, love. His primary characteristic is holiness. 
In our culture, in this Romans 1 culture, we have flip-flopped that to make where God's primary characteristic is love, and we've defined love as approval. So now we say, if you love me, you have to approve of me, which means I give permission for you to keep doing the same pattern. Now you keep going deeper into Romans 1, and somebody has to stand up and say, stop, and that is godly men. As unpopular as that is, and as many arrows it may come, like it's, it's our responsibility as men. I joke with Steph this morning. I posted a video yesterday on Juneteenth. As harmless as that is, Juneteenth is a national holiday now since 2021 that celebrates when finally the Union Army made it to Galveston, Texas to free the last slaves in Texas. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. It was late 1865 when finally the last slaves got set free. Right? So for the African-American community, that is literally the 4th of July for them. That is the day independence came. I'm no longer property. I'm now a citizen. That's a big deal. Huge deal. Spiritually, it should tell us that, okay, there were some slaves that are set free, but until all are free, nobody's really free. Spiritually, it represents the year of Jubilee. So if you look at Jewish law, the year of Jubilee is every 50 years. In the Jewish law, Jewish custom, anybody who owned property, anybody that owed debt, anybody who was a slave, they got set free. Bills paid, everything forgiven, set free. It was a year celebrated. The land rested. They wouldn't plant any crops. They wouldn't reap. It was a year of rest, a year of freedom, a year of deliverance. This is kind of like their year of Jubilee. Actually, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus preached for the first time in the synagogue, he goes through the whole thing. I came to uh, set free the captives and all this stuff that he goes through. And the um, favorable year of the Lord, which is terminology for the year of Jubilee. He's equating it to salvation of, of prodigals and all these sons running home, being released from bondage and captivity and debt and slavery. So I post this video. I thought if anybody didn't like it, it'd be like the super fundamentalist conservatives who thought any black holiday is stupid. So I'm expecting that. I have somebody from the homosexual perspective, LGBTQT perspective, that begins blasting my Facebook page. Right? So he uses cuss words. And I say, hey, man, like we can have this conversation without using explicit language. And he goes off on more explicit language. So it's people like, it took George Floyd getting shot before any white evangelicals would ever do anything. I'm like, bro, we've been in this a long time. I've been in this a long time. Well, if you would use your voice for, to affirm the LGBTQT community like you did for, for African Americans, I was like, well, hold up, bro. I said, like, I love and respect anybody. I'll have lunch with anybody. I'll have coffee with anybody. I love people from, I'm very non judgmental. I was like, but I can't affirm anyone's lifestyle that is contrary to God's will and God's word. Because if I do, I put them on a trajectory towards hell instead of heaven. And we go through this whole back and forth and he's like, blankety, blanket, blankety, blank. I said, look, man, like you're calling our church a bunch of anti-Christian bigots. Yet no one here has called you names. No one's used foul language. No one's done this. The only bigot I see is you. And that is where culture is coming to, where if you stand firm for anything, they try to manipulate you into thinking you're the bigot. And I will tell you, having values does not make you a bigot. Standing on principles does not make you a bigot. Standing on God's word doesn't make you a bigot. But the spirit in which you communicate those things may. 
And so as a man, it is your responsibility to stand firm, to protect your family from the influences of culture that are trying to change your family from the inside out. In this scripture, me and uh, Pastor Brian talked about this the other day. Genesis chapter 20, or chapter 19, says this. And it was the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, but they, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came out to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, meaning sexually rape them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, which do not do that, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, send them back or stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become our judge. So they're accusing Lot of being the judge for not letting them rape somebody. It's amazing how the enemy uses the same tactics every generation. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But then the men reached out their hands and brought Lot back to the house. And with them, they all shut the door. Men, we need to be Lot in this thing. When the enemy starts trying to bring his junk into your house, you better learn to shut the door. Because the enemy is using these two things right now to get men who are standing firm to give up their rightful place as men of God. One, they're trying to convince you to get into your house to begin to lead your kids because you're not leading them. You don't believe me? Disney. It's a shame that Disney has to come up in a sermon. I remember Pinocchio, I remember Aladdin, I remember Dumbo, I remember all these movies. You know what they were? Movies. You know what Disney movies are today? Propaganda. When they won't play the movies in Saudi Arabia because there's so much propaganda, but in America we keep on playing them, guess what's happening? They're trying to get your kids to believe a worldview that's anti-God before they can even talk. And just like Lot, you may need to shut the door on them. But two, the enemy will say, once you shut the door, oh, who are you to judge? You're so judgy. You're so judgmental. Oh, you're better than us. You're bigger than us. Oh, you're so much holier than us. You're so much right. You're so self-righteous. You're so... Let them say it. Because you know where these cats were saying it at? From the other side of the door. If they're on the outside, listen, I'm not a proponent of a homosexual lifestyle or the LGBTQT or any of that stuff. But if it's outside in their own world, let them do what they want to. That's what Romans 1 is. Turn them over to their own lust. But in my house, right. over my dead body. Like, because you believe something, that's fine. But for, as a man, I have to stand firm and protect the influences of my house. So don't conform your values to the values of culture. Stand firm. And then and last but not least, be strong. Which means just be strong, be protective, be supportive. Yes. Like men are naturally the stronger vessel. That doesn't make them better than women in any form or the word. It just means their vessel is stronger. The contents are just as valuable and just as equal, just as powerful. But the vessel that carries the components of the contents is different. First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, which tells me Peter never got married. Because <laughs> there ain't no way no married brother said that. 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Which means that the way you treat your wife determines if God hears your prayers or not. But two, she's the weaker vessel, but the contest, the, the grace is the same grace. And so what that means is as men, it's our job, since we're stronger, to be protective, but also supportive. It should never threaten a godly man to see a woman empowered. It should never threaten a godly man to see a woman walking in her giftings, her anointing, her abilities. It should never threaten any man to see a woman be strong. Like we all talk about, you know, I didn't preach on this Mother, Mother's Day, Proverbs 31 woman. That's an incredible woman. You know what she'd be called today? A feminist. Why? Because she's strong. And we're intimidated by strong women. I'm married to a strong woman. We have strong women in the staff. We have strong women in this church. Thank God for strong women. You know what it takes to lead a strong woman? A strong man. And men are the stronger. It takes a strong man to be supportive of other people. And if you're a godly man, you want to be stronger because men build things and build people. Like as a man, maybe you build furniture, maybe you build houses, maybe you build a business, maybe you build a career, maybe you build an education, maybe men build things. We, we accumulate, we build things up. But you know what the greatest thing is going to be that you build? It's not going to be a church, it's not going to be a business, it's not going to be a house, it's not going to be a career, it's not going to be, you know, an election campaign. The greatest thing you'll ever build is people. It's people. These buildings fade away. Your job will pass away. All these things fade away. But the people you build will be your legacy. The wife you build up. The kids you build up. The friends you build up. The people you serve as an usher or a greeter or, or chapel kids or chapel youth or young adults or worse. The people you build up. That's the legacy. See, it takes a strong man to build somebody else up. It takes weak people to tear other people down. And it is okay to, my job, I want to see my girls flourish. I want to see Toya flourish. I want to see people flourish. My job as a leader is not to make myself look better. It is to build other people up as much as I can. That is being strong. And last but not least, do it all in love. So Paul goes through this whole thing. Be watchful, be strong, stand firm, act like a man, but do it all in love. Which means you can do all that, you can be strong, you can act like a man, you can be watchful, but if it's not done in love, it's still ungodly. And we all know, like, my dad was a great dad. Man, a great dad. He taught me hard work, he taught me selfish love. My dad, my dad was, um, he was loving, he, he was like not touchy-feely, awkward weirdness, but my dad would, would show me love physically. My dad told me how to play basketball, my dad taught me lots of life stuff, but he didn't teach me anything about God or anything really about life. Right? Well, the reason was my dad was strong. My dad watched out for me. My dad was firm and with a nice braided belt that worked really well. Like my dad did a lot of good things and he loved me, but it all wasn't done in love because he didn't know Jesus. So for it all, in order for it all to be done in love, you must love Jesus first and love Jesus most. You must love Jesus first and love Jesus most. That's great that you love your kids. It's great that you're at every ball game. That's great that you love your wife. But if it's not love that's flowing from heaven to you and through you, it's not real love. It's emotional love. It's phileo love. Like we have to be people 
especially as men, that we're okay with our first love being Jesus and being like Mary's where we sit at the feet of Jesus for God to fill us up, to give us our identity as a son, to give us the comfort we need, to give us the power that we need, to give us the wisdom that we need, to give us the example we need of sacrificial love so then we can truly love our wife and kids and love the people around us like Jesus. So if there's anything I can, I can give you for Father's Day, it would be this. Maybe it's time for you to recommit yourself to loving Jesus first and most. Loving Jesus first and most. Our little hierarchy in our family is I tell our kids, Jesus is first in my life. He saved me. He set me free. He changed me. He changed my identity. He transformed me. I give him first and most. Then from there is your mother. Not you little stinky kids. You're leaving at some point. She's, she's first. And I want to model that. I want them to see that when I come home, I give her attention first. I want them to see that I embrace her. I love her. I encourage her. I support her. Then it goes to my kids. Then it goes to my church. What happens, though, is if Jesus is not at the top of that list, everything else is very fragile and sensitive and quickly decays. And so maybe you just need to go home and fix your heart and tell your wife, hey, I love you. I really need to get my priorities in line to love Jesus first and most. Maybe you need to tell your kids, hey, I love you, but I've been making you number one in my life. I've been to every one of your ball games, all this stuff, but I've really detrimented the love that I'm supposed to be giving your mom. And the best gift you can give your kids is a good, healthy marriage. And it all goes back down to the priorities that if I just love Jesus first and most, everything trickles down and produces health all down the stream. That is my prayer for you today. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just real quick. I know it's not the most politically correct sermon, but I believe it is vitally important for you to know, for all the men in this room to know, it is okay to be a godly man. It is okay to be watchful. It is okay to be strong. It is okay to be firm. But it all must be done in and through the love of Jesus. How could we ever reach those who are against us? How could we ever reach those who disagree with us? How could we ever reach those who are far away from God? if we can't first and most love Jesus. So maybe you, just one question, maybe you came in the room today, maybe during worship, maybe during the sermon, maybe just someone, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you. And maybe your love is not in the right, proper order. And today's the day of recommitment for you where you say, you know what, I need to make this the day I, I realign my priorities and I put Jesus at the top of the mountain for me. I make him first and the most in my life. Be the Holy Spirit since speaking that today's the day. I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm going to just very quickly ask you to raise your hand if that's you. Say, no, that's me today. Thank you. Anybody else? Put your hands down. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you that the only reason we can love you is because you first loved us. And Father, I just pray for all the men in the room, even the women, even the kids, that we can come into alignment to make you our first love and our most important love. 
Father, we can receive from you love that is unconditional, and we can pour that love out into our families and our kids and the surrounding community and the people around us, Father, even our enemies, even our strangers, Father, even those far away from you. Father, I pray we're people marked by love. But Father, for the men in this room, I just pray for affirmation. Holy Spirit, I pray from heaven, you tell them, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That you remind them that it's okay to be godly men, to fill the void of a fatherless generation. Father, I pray for men to step up, to walk out their God-ordained purposes, and to be men who love you and love their families and lead extremely well. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.